As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before you hear this week's episode, Ed has asked me to give you a reminder to vote for our podcast in the British Podcast Awards in the Listener's Choice category. I think part of the reason he's so keen for you to do this is that he wants closure on some unresolved issues around the 2015 election. But more than that, we want as many people as possible to find out about the podcast and listen to it and spread these ideas far and wide. So go to britishpodcastawards.com stroke vote and type in reasons to be cheerful. It will take you mere seconds. British Podcast Awards last week published the 20 podcasts that have received the most votes so far, and we were in there. They didn't say which position we were in, so every vote really does help. And um, if you take a screenshot after you've voted and email it to us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com, then we'll put your name in the hat and we're going to pick somebody out when the when the votes are done to come and uh, spend some time with us when we're recording the podcast. We'll make you a cup of tea and give you a biscuit. So it's britishpodcastawards.com stroke vote. This is Reasons to be Cheerful, live from Sheffield City Hall. Please welcome to the stage Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Sheffield Sex City. It's a, it's a pulp song. Oh, right, right. They're a popular group from Sheffield. Popular beat combo. Yeah, exactly. Um, I worked out that the first gig I ever came to was at this venue. Really? Yeah, it's not very cool. It was Gloria Estefan. 
I got so free you tickets. Would have, it would have been, been... Like 15, 14, something like that at the time, which led me to think, what was your first gig? And oh you're not God. allowed to include Labour Party conferences. Oh my God. <laughs> Labour Party conferences, I think that's my answer. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think I have any. Billy anything... Bragg? Probably Billy to... Bragg, actually, yeah. Or was it George Ezra the other week? No, no I think it might be Billy Bragg, actually. Thank you for coming out. I thought Pleasure. There was, I thought there was, a palp- <laughs> there was a palpable excitement. Thank you for coming thank out. Thank you, thank you. There was a palpable excitement on the streets of Sheffield earlier as I walked from the station. Then I realised there's also some snooker going on tonight, so it was probably that, wasn't it? Yeah, I would have been... Well, I might have been watching Ronnie O'Sullivan tonight, uh, who is playing tonight. He's 5-3 down. Is that I'm right? I'm afraid... But it's like best of something like a lot, like 25 or something. Are you going to keep uh, checking your phone for updates? Uh, I might do in the interval. We could have got you an earpiece. I might, yeah, that, that would have been a good idea. Yeah. Shall we have a look at some of the reasons to be cheerful? As, as you've yes. been coming in, we've asked you to uh, give us your reasons to be cheerful. So we thought we could have a look at some of these. Okay. This one comes from Jack Burrows, who says, what's your reason to be cheerful? Bringing along a Tory friend. Ooh. But they didn't That's turn good. up. They oh. didn't turn up. Why not? I don't know. Jack doesn't elaborate. That's so disappointing. I know. Uh, Harry Browse says, what's your reason to be cheerful? This might be mine as well, actually. Um, ABBA are set to release new music this year. I think it's a real karaoke opportunity for me, don't you think? So Ed, Ed did karaoke last week to a, a Labour Party fundraiser in Lewisham. It didn't in go well. I know that the next day you spent quite a lot of time trying to suppress the videos. all video evidence, but yeah. I, I know it has leaked onto Twitter. Think, yeah, people have been looking at me sympathetically, basically. Shall we talk about what we're going to be talking about tonight? Then? We are. We're going to be talking about higher education and how we change higher education and whether it needs to change. And in a way, you know, there's a debate about tuition fees, and that is very much part of this debate. But I think sometimes the debate about tuition fees clouds a bigger debate of which it is part, which is what is higher education for? What are universities for? And in a way, I think there's obviously been a drive to make it about something else. You know, we've seen a mass expansion of higher education, which is a good thing, but we've also seen it much more adopt a lot of the kind of ethics of the marketplace. And we'll be discussing what that means, whether that's the right thing, what the alternatives are. And in addition to that, we're going to be joined by a very funny comedian. You will have seen him on telly and a bunch of stuff. Rob Rouse is coming along to give us some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. And we're going to get Gail Lofthouse to come up we and are, uh, suggest definitely. some ideas as well. Uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? I've got so many different reasons to be cheerful. Pick one. Uh, so, so I'll tell you what, mine is worthy. Um, so I was in my constituency in Doncaster North this, uh, for the re- Anyone in from Doncaster, by the way? Oh, fantastic. That's not that many people, given how nearby it is. <laughs> there's this thing called rivalry between Doncaster right, and Sheffield. Right. right, but we're not going to go into that. So there's um, this thing called the Youth Parliament. Do you know the Youth Parliament? Yes. Um, you were a member of the Youth Parliament, weren't you? No, you weren't. Uh, I still could be. You still could be. Borderline. You could borderline. Anyway, and so I met the two members of the Doncaster Youth Parliament, and they are campaigning for something called Curriculum for Life, which is basically about sex education, financial education, and all of that in schools. And I hadn't really realized this. This is not cheerful. Um, I I hadn't really realized that it didn't sound like sex education had moved on very much than when you or I were at school. I mean, it isn't really a core part of the curriculum for most people. It's a kind of add-on which they do kind of occasionally, maybe in biology, but sort of emotional well-being, all of healthy relationships, it's very kind of hit and miss. Right. And basically their campaign is to try and make it happen. 
And I would sort of encourage them to cause trouble and basically demand that the head teachers all see them and do that. And, that, and the reason I think it's a reason to be cheerful is inspiring young people who want to change things and want to, you know, give it their all to do so. So that's my reason to be cheerful. Right then, shall we get our we guests shall. out? I'd like to give a very warm welcome to Joe Grady, who's Senior Lecturer in Employment Relations and member of the UCU Committee at Sheffield University, Mark, Mark Leach, Editor of Wonk HE, the blog and think tank about higher education policy, and Joshua Falls-Tenza, Vice-Chancellor's Fellow for the Public Benefit of Higher Education at the University of Sheffield, and here they are. Give them a big welcome. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us. You could be doing other things on your Friday evening, uh, so it's very nice for you to come uh, to us. Can I just start with a, a, the sort of big question? And I said in the intro that the um, debate about higher education always gets reduced to tuition fees. I'd like you each to say, and I know this is a really hard question, you could talk for half an hour each about it, so, but don't do that. Uh, <laughs> sort of, what should higher education be for, in your view, and how far away are we uh, from that vision at the moment. Because I just wanted the audience to get a sense of where you're coming from uh, in this debate. And Joe, do you want to start? Personally, for me, I think that education at university should be a public good and that it should be available to people who want to come and really learn about a subject rather than being kind of underpinned by your ability to pay. And how far away are we from that at the moment? About £9,000. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Mark? I think universities should be for amazing teaching and great experiences for students. It should be about pushing the boundaries of knowledge in society and connecting with people and coming up with new ideas, new innovations. And how far away are we from at the moment? We're about halfway. Which half? <laughs> uh, complicated mix of kind of internal things, I think, inside universities and then government policy is kind of holding it all back. Uh, but it could be doing so much better. Okay. Joshua? Well, I'm a philosopher, so I apologize for the fact that it's going to be very abstract. But the simplest answer is that universities should be for the betterment of all. And the simplest function, the way in which you can tell that story, is if any of you have ever seen Star Trek. Star Trek tells the story of what an entire world state dedicated to the betterment of humanity and to its knowledge can actually aspire to. And we're about 500 years away from that if we believe the writers of that story. Who were who the Klingons? Oh. <laughs> we'll talk about that later, but I think they're in the other party. Say a bit more about why you think we're a long way away from that. Well, first and foremost, because even because when we can the, imagine... Sorry, you're the fellow for the public benefit of higher education. That's yeah? correct. Which yeah. is sort of Star Trek. You could have been called the Star Trek fellow for the public benefit of higher education. I did ask for that, yeah, but right. my boss said no. Uh, no the, you were also president of the... Student Union at Sheffield. Yes, I was, a little while ago now, 2010-11. But um, I think the question you're asking me is, why are we far away from something as ideal as we could possibly imagine in terms of the goal of universities? And the simple answer is because even when we can imagine that there's a public benefit or a common good that universities could further, we still think that basically those are those of nation states. We think largely within models where we think states compete with one another and that universities can help or hinder that particular purpose. At the moment, most people recognize that universities across the world are invested in a competition fetish. They aim to compete with one another and to bring some kind of prestige to their original nation. That's a problem. And what's the alternative apart from Star Trek? 
The alternative is to start taking very seriously the fact that universities work at their best when they work internationally, they work at their best when they're seriously funded by the states in which they function, and they work at their best when they link research with teaching, because those two things go hand in hand. But that means connecting to a democratic purpose and a true faith in the civic potential of universities, and I think we're quite far away in a lot of countries from taking that really seriously. Okay. Now, so how do you think we got here? I mean, you have different views about how far away we are from the vision that you have. But tell us what you think is kind of wrong with the system and and how we got to this point. From a teaching point of view, one of the biggest problems really is that students are making a very transactional choice about what they're doing, I think, a lot of the time, which I think links back to what, what you're saying. So I don't think that often people are maybe coming to university at the right time. Um, sometimes maybe taking a degree that they feel they need to do for labour market purposes in that kind of transactional way. And that's kind of led to a fetishization of a university degree as opposed to maybe other types of learning and other types of being and pursuing maybe what you want to do. So I think, you know, to go back to what you were saying in the intro, this marketization of this as a commodity that you do and then will help you and the way in which the labour market functions to reinforce that is really problematic and it it erodes the relationship that we're able to have with our students as well because they're here with a very different purpose to maybe students were 10 years ago. I know when I was an undergrad between 2002 to 2005, the concerns and the pressures that my students are having to deal with did not even occur to me whatsoever. Um, I lived a very different type of student life. I know that I had a different type of engagement with my lecturers and that's not that the lecturers and staff are academics now different and don't care for their students as much it's just the way in which things are set up make it very difficult to have the same sort of experiences and facilitate the same kind of growth and I think that that kind of personal growth is that because of the fees it's not just because of the fees because to me the fees are a big part of the marketization agenda so it would be a real kind of easy scapegoat to just say it was fees but clearly fees are a massive part of that marketization what are the other parts of it Um, So for us as academics, we are kind of measured in lots of different ways. Um, There's lots of different kinds of ways of measuring our teaching. I hear about things called REF and TEF. REF and TEFs, yeah, Yeah. they're big on acronyms, um, three-letter acronyms. So REF is basically a kind of a census of research, uh, which in and of itself is not a bad thing. And TEF is a kind of way of measuring teaching excellence. So these are all kind of excellence frameworks. Um, And that's in addition to another way in which students enjoy um, teaching is also measured Um, so I don't think most academics are opposed per se to kind of surveys and and things being measured it's just the metrics and the ways things are kind of reified and measured and what that transforms the relationships and the experiences that you're able to have because everything is so driven by performing well in these metrics that maybe the meat and bones of what provides the education gets a bit lost within that. I think the, the big kind of meta change that happened in the last few years that, that impacted on how universities make decisions was the kind of entering the free market into student places. So before the government decided, or one of the government agencies decided how student numbers were allocated, um, and then a few years ago, it was George Osborne, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, lifted that uh, numbers cap. Universities were able to, uh, were encouraged to start competing with each other for those same numbers. Um, it fundamentally changed the character of universities in, in, in this country. Um, everyone started competing against each other. It got increasingly vicious and difficult. And then 
the incentives being, of course, to succeed in that kind of free market meant that a lot of these uh, measurements and systems uh, that we're talking about had to come in to kind of justify that. In the so, sense. in other words, if you're competing for students and the money from students rather than the money from the government or, government yeah. or indirectly from government, it, to- it changes the incentives. Completely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, not only that, it occurs in a situation where an entire generation of young people are coming of age when they are fully aware that their future is likely to be less good than that of their parents materially. And so, therefore, it puts a lot of pressure on that choice of where you go to university and what that university education will offer you. The fundamental challenge that I think we find ourselves in in the UK, and in England in particular, uh, because of the traveling of fees, uh, is that... We as educators want to encourage our students to think as broadly and as richly as possible to understand not just what they want to do for a living, but what they want to do with their lives, what vocations they might have that go beyond what gives you a paycheck. And that's a very difficult conversation to have when our students really are under financial pressure when they come, a lot of them, and they are under immense financial pressure when they leave. And here, really, the worse than the fees, and it's saying something, is the fact that the interest rate on uh, the loans that were given for those fees have been kind of let loose. Yeah, I think the latest number is 6.2%, and it used to be uh, pegged to inflation. And so that's a fundamental change in the way in which we're treating a whole generation of people. One even worse thing, I think, in my mind, is this um, idea that the, the, the whole point of your university degree is to get a job. It's an incredibly pernicious idea, and it's one that this government's promoting, trying to potentially link it to the tuition fee system by subject. There's lots of reasons why people... um, Just explain what you mean, Mark. This is the idea that you can only charge higher tuition fees if you have higher employability in your subject. Yeah. Um, It's an incredibly difficult idea because um, there's lots of reasons why people might undertake courses in in universities that that aren't about earning. Uh, But also, most importantly, all the research shows that um, the number one factor that demonstrates your, your future earnings potential is your parents' income before you even start university. So the debate about what subject should link to I what see. fee is, is completely see. broken. And then, and then we've been talking about also kind of local labour market trends as well. So if there's no jobs in the area, then there's no jobs and you're not going to earn the money. And this is part of the TEF, is that right? Yeah, the, and, the, and the focus now on outcomes from teaching, yeah. For those who want to read something about it, there's a particularly good article by Stefan Collini in the London Review of Books in January 2016, which goes into some of this. Right, this hasn't been so cheerful so far. I think we'll have noticed. Uh, we're now going to make the turn uh, into the cheerful vision, uh, which you're all going to come up with. Talk about the strike, Joe, because you definitely think that has been a cheerful moment and there's news today on the strike. So the dispute um, was... In terms of addressing some of the issues that have just been raised, this sort of feeling of kind of crushing under the weight of marketization and you know not being able to connect with your students, I think for a lot of university staff and particularly for maybe academics, the strike was a complete kind of um, reversal of that. So there was 14 strike days over four weeks, which involved... And this was about the pension, for those who don't know. Yeah, so this was triggered by a pension dispute and... Um, we had like an array of weather over these four weeks. If you'd have put the photographs together, it would have looked like we were on strike for a year um, (laughs) because there was lots of snow. And, you know, through the adversity of being in really cold weather together, a lot of students joined picket lines. Um, A shout out to the Free University of Sheffield. 
at Sheffield, they had a roving picket um, that went to the various picket lines that Sheffield University has with um, a big speaker playing disco tunes to get everyone to dance in the snow. Um, And they just sort of lifted spirits. And then after the picketing in the morning, there was teach outs in the afternoon where academics that were on strike went and delivered several sessions, sometimes about their discipline, sometimes about political things. So it really kind of re-energised the idea of what could a university be? And staff and students kind of reclaim this idea that we are the university, not all of these kind of marketized agendas that none of us really enjoy, but we have to do as part of our job. So the strike really um, offered forward a vision, I think, that a lot of us want to keep on pursuing. And that's kind of, even though the dispute has changed a little bit and has calmed down, there's still a lot of momentum among staff and students to keep hold of this kind of special thing that developed and, and keep on pressing forward with it. Now let's try and lay out what needs to change. And look, just one thing to say in this is, you know, we can't cover every university subject here, but I'm rather in favour of the expansion that's been in higher education. I'm not saying you're against it. And when I think about the fact that lots and lots of people from working class backgrounds don't go to university, uh, and I think, well, how do you expand that? It's like you've either got to expand that by expanding the numbers further, or you've got to expand it by fewer middle-class people going to university. So there's only two ways of doing it. So I must say, I, I think that one of the things we've got to do in this is not lose sight of the virtues of expansion, partly just not for economic reasons, but for, you know, you have a, you have a good time, you meet new people, you opens up your horizons, all of that. I'm not saying it's for everyone. So I think you've got to somehow combine expansion with some of the values you've been talking about. I don't want to go back to some old university, like go back to the 70s, because I think there was a lot of problems with universities, not being very inclusive. Maybe some of the people who worked there enjoyed it. I think the the discussion needs to be, what are we creating and what is that going to look like, rather than maybe restoring something. And It might sound like I'm trying to dodge an answer, but I think that that's a conversation that's happening in in kind of every branch of universities. Tell us some aspects of that. One of the things that um, is being discussed at the moment is the fact that this country struggles with having an industrial strategy and really scaling up. Uh, This is a problem that this country suffers from more than a lot of its European competitors, particularly than Germany. Germany has a model where universities don't have as many uh, students as there are here in university. But it has a very well-funded university system as well as a very well-funded further education as well as vocational training program, which is respected by employers. One of the difficulties in this country is that universities has been, have been, as, an, as a name, synonymous with kind of saying middle class for a long time. And therefore, it sort of has functioned as a cachet for accessing middle class jobs. One of the difficulties is that to change fundamentally what we mean when we say university means taking seriously the other parts of tertiary education. And that is something that most governments from both of the major parties have avoided doing. And it takes a lot of work and it takes taking very seriously what other countries do well and perhaps better than we do here. Something else, something else positive that universities could do, I think, is um, a kind of renewed emphasis on social activism. So we've got an amazing research infrastructure. We've got some of the cleverest people in the world. We've got fantastic research going every day. A lot of the effort and, and time and energy has been put into commercializing that, which is fine. I understand it kind of justifies it to a certain extent. Um, but there's a huge amount that could be turned towards allying with campaigns from 
welfare reform to mental health to issues that actually matter to people, universities are uniquely well-resourced intellectually and actually financially on a lot of those issues, and they need to embrace new technologies uh, and and new methods to do that. I think that part of the... um, And I I think that would go some way to ameliorate some of the criticism about tuition fees and being out of touch in general, which is this kind of current theme that universities kind of facing at the moment. And Joe, just to go to the issue of fees, which Mark mentioned, do you think that getting rid of fees could reverse some of these effects or at least move us forward to something better? Yeah, I mean, I'm completely opposed to fees. And what will getting rid of fees do? As, as well? I mean, obviously, it'll make education free, but, but beyond that... But I think that's the big issue, and I, to, to link it back to um, what Joshua was saying, that... If I imagine me now, 17, there is just no way I would apply to go to university. And going to university has vastly enhanced the way in which my life is now. Um, The amount of debt that you accrue with that. So then even if you take the leap and come, if you're from a working class background, you then have to be a very different person when you're in a university than to maybe how I was able to enjoy being. So it it kind of fundamentally is important because it completely then colours the rest of your time there. Um, And, you know, the problem with stuff like the TEF and things like that that rank how students feel about their learning in the moment when they've done it and received it, often with my students that I stay in touch with, it can be five, six, ten years where they'll say to you, that thing that we did in third year, it all makes sense now. And that's completely lost in what we capture. Um, So I think it does firmly underpin a lot of these issues that are connected. How do you have teaching assessment without it missing the point? You know, in a way, if we're not going to hark back to a golden age, it's not wrong to say that there'll be some areas where the teaching wasn't brilliant, and, okay. and therefore, what do you do about that? There's no doubt about it, but the, the QAA system, which was the, the old system to evaluate the bottom bar, basically the goal of the QAA system was to say anything that's beneath a certain standard is just unacceptable in universities and will have to be changed. No one disputed that as being an advancement in terms of quality of teaching in universities. The dispute is to try to create a universal metric that tells you what is the best, what is the slightly less good, and all the way down. And in fact, no one who works in universities believes that the teaching excellence framework does anything like that because it uses metrics that are supposed to be proxies for the quality of teaching, but no one really even thinks they come anywhere near saying anything about the quality of education that students receive. So that's fundamentally problematic. If you add to that the fact that the reforms that have gone along with the TEF, so the HERB was the, the bill that Parliament voted on, the Higher Education Research Bill, um, included within it a fundamental restructure from Hefke to the Office for Students. The Office for Students does not have... That was the ma- thing that Toby Young was going to be part <laughs> That's of. correct. Yeah. And it's also uh, the Office for Students where representatives of students do not have a seat. This is not about dodging legitimate feedback. You know, we want, sure. to, we want to learn and improve what we're doing. And, and, and with the teaching excellence frameworks, as, as, as it's been said, a vast gulf between actual teaching and what's being measured. The best possible proxy, and it's so flawed, is, this, is the National Student Survey. And even that's been hugely downgraded in the exercise, completely reframed on outcomes, which just seems like this ideological project and, and so far away from teaching and so far away from anyone doing the actual teaching. And there's so much money and resource ploughed into these, these exercises that, you know, if that time was freed up and that financial resource was freed up, then some of the kind of issues about resourcing could, you know, almost kind of disappear. What are the better ideas for measuring this stuff? Well, one of them in terms of teaching is uh, focusing on student engagement. So there's two fellows, 
uh, Jeffrey Stokes uh, and Graham Gibbs, who both used to work for the Higher Education Academy, which no longer exists. I don't know what they sit in now, but they both have been pushing for quite a while that if we're going to take very seriously the notion of evaluating teaching, we should really ask students how engaged they are in their learning because there's good evidence that this is actually a much greater indicator of whether students are receiving a good quality education than whether they're satisfied. But that fundamental shift in emphasis reveals much more. They still are skeptical of whether or not you can really draw a full metric conclusion from top to bottom. I am much more skeptical than they are, even on that. But. I mean, on this subject of there being no students on the Office of Students, why don't we take some questions? Hi, my name's Clara. I'm an academic. Uh, my question is... Where are you an academic, Clara? Uh, De Montfort University in Leicester. Uh, my question is mainly about what we do about the casualisation of the profession because it kind of links in we talk a lot about working class students at the level of of entry at undergraduate level but obviously at the same time uh working class students you know it would be quite nice for them to be taught by people that have gone through the same experience themselves but the way the system is now often uh it's expected now that you'll spend at least a couple of years basically working part-time hourly paid and that's not feasible if you're not coming from a background where you've got kind of family support that can help with that. And that's something that's maybe uh, started to come up with the things that have come up with the strike, but just wondered what more we can do about that, I guess. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Good question. And there's a question at the back. Hi, um, I'm Anna. I'm actually the incoming education officer for the Sheffield Students' Union next year. So there's a round of applause, I think. <laughs> Um, so I'm really excited that you're talking about higher education. Um, this is a question about how does decolonisation and the liberation of our curriculum play into the idea of um, higher edu- education reform and like the marketisation of education? We'll get them to answer that. Just does your, as somebody who is a student at the moment, does the picture painted by the panel fit with what you're experiencing? Does it not fit? What, what do you think? Yeah, I think so. The thing with kind of like when you were saying what should higher education be, like university for me, it should be kind of like a two-way relationship. And I feel a lot of university is very like one way between the staff and the students. And you don't have, for me, I'm a politics student. So I only have like six contact hours a week. You don't have any kind of like time to really get into the like debates with, with the staff and the lecturers. And especially the way they structure it is like, you have a lecture by a lecturer, a professor, but your seminars are run by PhD students and they, they facilitate discussion, but they don't, they don't feel like they engage enough like with the students. So I feel like you kind of, it's very much you're on your own and it's like independent learning, which is fine, I understand that, but when you're paying all that money, you want to get the most for it. And I feel like the, the way the system is now, it's not really appropriate. Well, panel, come back on some of that stuff. I mean, I think that last question is really interesting because how do you combine having lots of people at university, which I personally think is a good thing, and having sufficient contact? And maybe that's where the fees are the big problem because it's, as Anna said, you know, and you're paying all this money, etc. But just offer some thoughts on on some of those questions. I want to go back to the question of decolonisation, which yeah. was also also yeah. mentioned. Um, I think it's, it's really important to for universities to open a space for the, these discussions. Um, I think the worst a bit about that is the way the right wing press jumps on every little uh, every little debate, every little notion that students might even be questioning their curriculum. 
which I think is a positive thing, especially in a curriculum wanting to get involved with it, wanting it to, to represent, uh, wanting to represent them. It's also part, I think, of a wider uh, push to to kind of vilify students as snowflakes, out of touch from kind of ordinary concerns, all this scare about trigger warnings and safe spaces, and and it helps separate universities out from the rest of society by separating out students from the rest of society. And I think there's a really easy fix to a lot of that, which is universities and universities' leadership taking a massive ownership of that issue, recognising that students are a massively important part of their community and pushing back on a lot of that criticism. And we're not seeing that at the moment. To return to the point about this engagement and this two-way process with academics, I think the comment from the floor pretty much mirrored what I was saying earlier, that there isn't the space to do this. And how do you create the space to do that, Joe? But I think this links back to what was being said earlier about the kind of the fetishization we have in the UK about higher education just being a university degree and a particular type of university degree. And I know in the discipline that I work with, which is kind of broadly management studies, I would say that over my years since 2009 as, as working in this industry, um, in management rather, sorry, there's a lot of students who I, I don't think that's what they really want to do. Right. I think they'd be happy doing something else. They'd be pushed into it. I don't know whether being pushed is, is, is representative, but they're there anyway for perhaps all manner of reasons. Um, so, yes, some disciplines like mine have very large student numbers, which make genuine engagement with every student more difficult. But in addition to that, because there are all these other things that we have to do and we're very highly measured on everything, it also means that you simply don't have the same time as well. So student numbers is a small part of the problem for some disciplines, for other disciplines it's not. But the academics are just under as much stress and pressure within those disciplines. So the same students in smaller disciplines presumably are getting a similar type of um, experience. So I think if we had a system where people were more free to explore what they genuinely might want to, and that that type of education was just as respected as the way in which university education is, you could have a completely different terrain of people doing things that fulfill them and they enjoy and they're able to engage with properly, delivered by people who are able to kind of, you know, reciprocate in the same way. Because our research is completely informed by the experiences that we have with our students. Um, you know, that's what makes it such an enjoyable thing to do. Um, so, you know, when I hear stories like that, um, they really sort of upset me because it's really dispiriting to know that I can't give to somebody exactly what I was lucky enough to be able to receive. And I think it's not an insurmountable issue and it's not just a kind of a numbers issue. Yeah, systemically, I think it reflects uh, mission confusion. Uh, universities in the UK are pushed to be good at everything. Uh, and in fact, since fees have trebled, they've been kind of encouraged to be better at more things, uh, which makes it kind of difficult to be really good at the one thing that now that the money is coming from students would be reasonable to expect. And so uh, I think especially in a university like the University of Sheffield or all of the research-intensive universities, really, what they have in common is that uh, all of your academics, in addition to teaching the classes, have really serious research commitments that they need to deliver on. And in fact, a lot of the time, appointments and promotion decisions are made very seriously, more so on the basis of research than on teaching. And that's a, that's a fundamental problem that all universities need to address. But even the non-research-intensive universities, uh, such as Hallam and Sheffield, but a lot of other universities across the country, are encouraged to be better at research because if they do better in the REF, then they can get this extra pot of money that they wouldn't have access to by just increasing their student numbers. Not only that, it looks better then when they can recruit students and say, yes, we're post-92, but we did well in the REF. And so... There's this pressure that is put on academics in general to be good at everything. 
And that is not really feasible without increasing the resources. And one thing that wasn't discussed in relation to the pensions dispute is that pay and casualization, they kind of go hand in hand, are these creeping kind of simmering issues for all academics across the the higher education sector in the UK because the fear is what if one day your department closes and then you don't have a job? What if one day, uh, even if you have a very good record, you need to go find a job on the global market? Well, it looks very different. Just on the point of casualization, and I'm glad someone raised it because it's a huge issue and it's really going to be the major issue that universities have to tackle moving forward because delivery of these big class sizes, because of the pressures just outlined on full-time kind of faculty staff, there is this fleet of underpaid, precarious, um, employed staff who are being completely shafted, to be honest with you, in universities, in the hope that if they hang out long enough, they'll be able to get a full-time contract. It's also a choice for for university to say we want to be both world-class at teaching and world-class at research. It's a completely old-fashioned notion of what a university has to be. There's absolutely no reason in the world why you have to do both, and all the incentives in the system now mean that actually unless you're on the really elite end, you're probably going to go broke trying, or you're going to absolutely screw over your own workforce, as we've been discussing, okay. um, and cause a lot of problems along the way. Let's go back to the audience. That's really good answers. Hiya. Hi. Yeah. Um, I studied chemical engineering at Sheffield. And, uh, What's your name? Uh, Charlie. Hi. Hiya. Um, I guess just I want to highlight a point that may, might have been missed, I guess. Uh, there's been a lot of focus on the fees as a barrier to e- education, um, but I think one of the from just uh, anecdotal evidence from my my friends, and I think the biggest one of the bigger barriers is uh, maintenance grants and how how that's changed from a grant to, to now uh, yeah. poorer students are having to take out a loan. Yeah. So they're going to be worse off than the richer students going to university. It's it's a, a complete imbalance. Huh? Okay. Good. Good. Really good question, Charlie. What's like, your name? It's Sam. Hi. Um, it's inexorably linked with like universal basic income, right? As like a concept. Okay. Because Episode one. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> if you have that like like safety net of basic income, then you know that you don't necessarily have to go to university, or you have other options. Okay, and then put the penny. In. I'm a PhD student at Sheffield, but one thing none of the panel have mentioned is the open university, and I want to know what we can do to save the open university. Because I first went to university in 1998, which was the last year of the grant. My grant was 850 quid. It didn't even pay my rent. I dropped out because I had no money. And then I dropped out again because I had autism and mental health problems. So I I was given a third chance by the Open University. Um, I've got Jenny Lee tattooed on my leg. I love it that much. But it's under attack at the moment. And it comes to something when the Daily Mail is the the place that's championing the Open University. Good question. And then the question at the back. Hi, I'm Moya. I'm a student and I'm also an elected representative on Sheffield City Council. A round of applause, please, for elected representative. (laughs) Thank you. My question is that if we are talking about the idea that people, right at the beginning it was raised that people feel under pressure to go to university, that it's, you know, straight after college, they might make the wrong choice, and then with the fees, what do you do? So with the current... Labour Party suggesting the concept of a national education service like a national health service. Does that make you excited? What would you expect from that? What are you looking for? Thank you. Okay, so you've got grants, universal basic income, the Open University and the National Education Service. You can all take your pick. I think that... You've got to answer all of them, more or less. 
there's there's absolutely no argument uh, standing in the way of bringing back grants for students. It's complete outrage they were taken away. Um, and it's one of the few things that people in the higher education sector seem to agree needs to come back. The government has even made indications that they're going to, to bring it back, but they're having a big review. It's taking another year. If they wanted to bring it back, they could do it tomorrow. So um, there's no excuse, really. It's I all think, about an accounting trick as yeah. well. I mean, that was why it was got rid of. It was a sort of George Osborne accounting trick. Yeah, it's a year-on-year accounting trick, exactly. Um, with the OU, it's similar in that the, the current fee system absolutely decimated uh, the part-time market for higher education and that it just didn't, uh, it wasn't capable of recognising the fact that people wanted to study part-time, which is a massive part of, of what the OU does. Um, again, there is consensus that needs to be saved. We've, we've lost almost half of the numbers of part-time students in this country in the last five years, which is a, which is a huge disgrace. Um, there's consensus that something must be done. So that's the good news. But we're waiting. We're waiting for the government to uh, to come up with something. I think the main thing that I would pick up on those are really, really excellent questions. I want to pick up on the UBI because the universal basic income because that's always an exciting conversation to be having. Yeah, um, it sounded as though quite the, a long conversation. The person <laughs> asking that question, episode was suggesting one. Yeah. That if we had the universal basic income, fewer people would need to go to university. Uh, I think usually the conversation that goes around the universal basic income is what will be the structure of the labor market in the future. And there are worries, whether they're founded or not, I really don't know, about whether jobs will be as available in 20 or 30 years as they are now, and whether a lot of people who work will be replaced by either very sophisticated software or full-on robots. Uh, It's hard to tell whether that's true or not, but it raises an interesting question. If fewer people are going to be employed, uh, then sure, we need to finance their survival, universal basic income, but also... What is the purpose of universities in that context? In this country, universities have very, very willingly adopted the role of providing high-skilled labor. That's what they've been doing for a long time. People used to call it the sausage factory uh, model of higher education. But when you no longer have a need for that many people or that highly skilled, universities are going to need to change fundamentally. And I personally think that the best ideal, the most optimistic and utopian ideal, a reason to be cheerful indeed, is actually to think that we could be Universities as places where a whole society, a whole community can come together to educate themselves because they want to, to be involved in cultural activities like this one because they want to, to be funded to basically develop themselves and their communities into richer, more joyful places to live. I know that is hard to imagine under this current government. I feel that way too. But I I have to believe that this is possible, otherwise I wouldn't do what I do. Joe? Uh, what he said. <laughs> um, I think I'll, I'll probably pick up on the idea of um, a national uh, education service and maybe link it with this idea of lifelong learning. Um, because I, when I did my undergraduate degree, I just kind of knew I wanted to go to uni. I didn't really know what I wanted to study, so I picked the stuff that I was quite good at. But I was really lucky. I'm going to plug my uh, old university, the University of Lancaster. Um, they did something called a three-system part one. So in your first year, which was part one, you chose three subjects. And then in part two, you had to specialise. And I ended up choosing something completely different to what I wanted to go and do. And it's now what I teach people. And I think the idea that you have time to explore and the pressure isn't on and that it maybe gives you access to lots of different things is really important. And lifelong learning is about that as well. And that's why what's happening at the OU is, is really quite disturbing. And at the University of Leicester, where I used to work, they closed their lifelong learning centre that had educated the citizens of Leicester for over 100 years, you know, several generations of people who maybe, you know, there was 
three generations of women who'd all got pregnant when they were younger, started families when they were younger, not gone through kind of education, but then in later life um, got a degree and kind of really changed the trajectory of what they were doing later on and really benefited from that. And that's just disappeared for those people. And they are normally, you know, often women. And that's a, that's a real shame. Now, we're going to have to let Mark go because yeah, he's should. literally going to miss his train. Uh, say thank you to Mark Leach, everybody. I think you've sort of done this, but I think you. I think we should give them a sort of chance to say something truly cheerful. Don't yeah, you think? So like the Jeff, Jeffocracy question. Yeah. So we have a thing on the podcast. If if I was a benevolent dictator, which I would be, it, it wouldn't corrupt me in any way. Um, <laughs> Not any more than already. <laughs> if if you were made joint university, I was I was going to include Mark in this, but fuck him. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, so your joint university ministers, uh, what do you do? What's your big idea day one? You're called in by Jeff. He's sort of sitting back in his chair in Downing Street. Yep. The world is in shock. It's a bigger shock than Donald Trump becoming <laughs> president of the United States. And he, and he decides to turn to you both yeah. uh, to be the joint university ministers. Well, the first thing would be I would make it absolutely free. But the fact of the matter is that that would have to go hand in hand with a doubling of the budget available for universities. And I'd then ask universities to accept absolutely everyone. What does that that. actually mean? It means the fact... I'm just advisor, by the way, for these purposes. (laughs) (laughs) I was fine with accepting everyone. Okay, okay. You seem convinced. I'm I'm Sir Humphrey. For those who used to watch Yes, Prime Minister, I'm Sir Humphrey for these purposes, right? (laughs) You, you're talking to a bunch of millennials about whether they used to watch Yes Minister. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, fine, okay. I'm the civil servant, right? But it's a really interesting idea. Go on, say more about accepting everyone. I mean that if you're willing to take any student, any person who wishes to be a student, to come and be a student in your university, and you're willing to put the pedagogical effort into helping achieve whatever it is they aim to achieve, it doesn't matter if they get a full accreditation at the end. What matters is that they make the progress they wish to make. I'm... I'm... You're into that. Yeah, I'm in. Yeah, yeah okay. I, look, Prime Minister, just don't go too quickly for these ideas. You've got to have a sort of in, interdepartmental You've got review. more questions. Uh, <laughs> and does any country do that? Uh, fully, no. What, well, who does it closest? Uh, arguably, Finland has got a model like that, but universities are segregated into various different groups, and so that's how they do it. They have kind of models of vocational uh, educations that look like universities. An alternative model is the French system, which Macron is undoing at the moment. But you still need a baccalaureate to get into the general fac system in France. And I said, I really like that. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I really like that. You're, you're into it. Yep. Okay. Yeah, it's a fundamental way to sort of, and mine, mine is kind of related to break down this kind of elitism. Because one of the things that you see is that there's so much pressure on young people to get certain degrees. There's so much coaching and training that what you, you see with universities, particularly in some, is that they perpetuate class system and they perpetuate privilege and it's a way of people being able to buy access to networks and then an education that will continue to perpetuate what I think are really bad structures of dominance that we see all around us that reinforce that and I think this idea that okay maybe for whatever reason um, the school didn't work out for you but you can come here and you know if we are good teachers what we are and you're in a supportive space with access to resources then you can succeed as well and you can grow and you can learn. So I would be fully in support of this. I think we'd make a good team. I'm up for that. Do do they get the job? They got the job, yeah. You got the job. 
coming soon. I have one more reason to be cheerful. Go on, yeah. Um, I think when, one of the things that constantly inspires me about my students and that I saw during this dispute, the strike when we were all together, is despite the fact that, you know, this generation of people are often referred to as being a bit jilted, you know, that the promises that previous generations in, had and enjoyed, a lot of those pathways are not open to these people or seem, you know, completely far away. They are so inspiring and intelligent and hopeful about the future and I are willing agree. to fight for a better future despite the I fact agree. that they're often told it's not achievable and that needs to be recognised. Totally right. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, can you thank uh, in particular Joe and Joshua for their brilliant contribution? Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Please welcome to the stage comedian Rob Rouse and voice of Reasons to be Cheerful, Gail Lofthouse. Your BBC Radio colleagues. Rob does a show for BBC Radio Sheffield. Gail yep. does a show for BBC Radio Leeds. Yeah. But we've never met before. Well, we usually, we're not actually allowed in the same room because it will kick off what with the rivalry <laughs> between the two yeah, studios. So, you, I mean, you, there could be bloodshed on the stage. <laughs> I can see in Gail's house, she's almost ready to go, aren't you, Gail? I could take you on. Yeah, well... <laughs> so you both brought ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Yes, yes. yeah, manifesto pledges. Give, it, give us your first one. The first idea I had is called, um, it's called Car Karma. 
And it's a loyalty scheme for nice people, sort of. And, um, and the idea is, you know when you're driving around and you're a nice person and you let people in and, um, and you behave well on the roads, you stick to the speed limit, you're a good person. You say thank you, you, you put your hand up, you smile. Every time you do something like that, you, um, you gain loyalty points. And what you can do with those loyalty points is you can cash them in for days out um, <laughs> or, or for um, something nice like, um, like an inflatable castle for the kids, you know, something like, <laughs> something like that in the background. So something that, something that you want or like money off your shopping. Um, and the thing is, this is lovely because everybody would start driving really well and everybody would be really nice to each That's other. That's good. Except they wouldn't, Ed. Why not? Because... Because they don't want the bouncy castle, no, Gail? because rich people with big cars would just think, <laughs> this is brilliant, and yeah. they would just start driving even worse. So they would, they would then be like the proper kings and queens of the road, and it would just create this horrible, horrible divide. So, yeah. so. <laughs> Or you, could, you might spend your time clocking up, you know, good points just to do something really heinous. Well... Right, so this is part of car karma. Right. Now, you can spend your loyalty points on nice things for yourself and your family, or you can wait until somebody horrible's tailgating you. <laughs> like it. And then you can use your loyalty points to get the car karma team working for you. And then what they do is they deploy pigeons to poo... <laughs> of course. To poo on um, these bad people's nice cars. Yeah. You see? Brilliant idea. And the car karma team, they might do other things, like they might sort of follow you around if you're, if you're that bad driver, you want to cash in that loyalty on that, on that particular driver. They might sort of get blocked in a petrol station mm. by an elderly couple. You know, like... <laughs> I admire the level of thought that's gone into this idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, I think, genuinely, insurance companies might be interested in this. <laughs> because, actually, I think there are, there are insurance companies who do rewards... Good drivers. So this is all, it's just the next level. Hey, this and is... if you get enough pigeons crapping on the windscreens, there could be some money for autoglass, like a backhander. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody's a winner, aren't they? Yeah. So, um, so that's... Definitely. Karma in a... Definitely. Yeah? Oh, we buy it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we definitely buy it. Don't we buy it, audience? Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> so well thought through. Yeah, let's, uh, let's see what you've got oh, then, Rob. Jesus, mine are How half-baked. can you match that? Listening to the podcast, it makes me realise that the problems of the world today are complex and nuanced, aren't they? Uh, in terms of global peacekeeping, uh, some of the world leaders are acting like children, like toddlers, like angry teenagers going through a complicated puberty. Um, so what I would say is society is held together often by the unsung heroes of our world. So what I propose is that everyone in the UN is replaced with dinner ladies. Now, <laughs> hear me out. My wife works once a week as a dinner lady, which is, a, she has her own tabard, it's spectacular. <laughs> tabard is my favourite word on earth. And dinner ladies are absolute masters of uh, peacekeeping and dealing with uh, altercations that and fracas. So what we've got to do is under, night, under cover of night is... is like, like, um, like black ops helicopter the dinner ladies in 
and they parachute down wearing stealth tabards, okay? <laughs> Which also double as parachutes. That's, I mean, that's how they get into most places. Any dinner ladies in the audience will know this, but they can't tell you because there's a secret code. And essentially, dinner ladies will now solve the world's problems. Now, feel free to cross-examine me. I have thought this through. <laughs> I mean, would there be additional training needed for the dinner ladies? There's nothing they can't do with a wet paper towel, Jeff. <laughs> Why has nobody thought of it before, do you think? I know. It's, it, when you think about it, it just makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're all dumbfounded. Are you sold on it? We're sold. Are you sold on it? Because you think, like, kind of Trump and Kim Jong-un are, in many ways display the attitudes of toddlers, don't they, of young children... Have you seen how much Kim Jong-un likes watching a missile launch? It's like, it's like when you give a five-year-old a brand-new toy car. He's just like, he loves a missile launch. And Donald, did you see Donald showing Macron round the White House? He goes, it's my telephone, which I make all my big calls on. He actually said that. So we're dealing with children. Now, and they're going to fight like children. The only person who can settle them down and put them in their respective corners is, the dinner is a dinner lady. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, we buy it. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. We definitely buy it, don't we? First one through. Gail, what have uh, you got next? I've got my picture. Right, let's have a look then. It won't make any sense to you. It's, um, it's a drawing um, by my I think you're going to have to explain it for the people I, I, the I really back. will. I really will. Um, this is my daughter's idea. She's started watching, rightly or wrongly, a lot of these like ambulance programmes. She's only eight... But she's fascinated in what paramedics do, which is a, a great thing, and I support that. Apart from when they get like sweary people in the back, and then I have to explain what it's all about. Um, but basically, she came she came up with this idea, and the idea was that going to hospital when you're a child is scary and confusing, and it's. It's mainly, in the main, it feels like a a grown-up world where you don't know what's going on. So her idea was that in every fleet of ambulances, you would have one funbulance. (laughs) And the funbulance goes out to children who have fallen over and broken their legs and things like that. So just to explain some of the design features of the Fumbulance. Now, one of the things that we learned from watching these uh, various shows is that if an old person falls over and uh, they need help getting up, rather than somebody bend over and say, come on, love, um, what they do is they slide under like this inflatable um, like bed almost and then they pump you up. So... Until Nana is like sat up, and then, and then they and then they lift you out. So it's nice for everybody, really. Um, but what what my little girl thought was, if you're a little one and you've fallen over, we'll just slide a bouncy castle under you. Nice. Which I think is the second mention for an inflatable That's in great, my idea. Yeah. I don't know why. And and then that would that would inflate, and then there would be a slide on the bouncy castle, which would take you into the Fumbulance. And you would know that the fumbulance was coming because instead of a siren, what you would have is um, you'd have a disco ball on the top of the fumbulance. Oh, this and, is great. And it, it would be playing pop music down the street. So, like, Katy Perry's coming. You know, must be the fumbulance. What's your She's... daughter's name? 
At Neve. Neve. Actually, out. Neve is clearly brilliant. She she's specified that the fumulence has to be two hundred and seventy centimeters tall. Yeah, she's she's. So they, they always she's very have, specific. aren't they always? <laughs> <laughs> what is what is two hundred and seventy? It's a couple of meters. It's well, nearly three meters. Three, yeah. Probably what she would have liked to have written is two thousand seven hundred millimeters, but she didn't want it to go over everyone's heads. <laughs> um, and but, other nice yeah. things in there. She's put. You know, when you finally get into the fumbulance, there's a there's a dance floor, which I think you would find difficult to use, depending on depending on why you were involved in the fumbulance. Depends yeah. what you're broken, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. and also yeah. Uh, there would be uh, lots of sweeties. You know, like jelly beans and. And things like that, and things dangling down. I don't know what they are, but I, I just thought it was a really, really lovely idea. Um, I idea. don't know if the funds are available. Well, for let's such hear it things. for Neve. I think we need to a round of applause in our absence. What's your next idea, Rob? I listened to your Facebook podcast, which I urge if you haven't listened to it yet. It's fascinating about the powerful algorithms that Facebook have. And I thought if we took all of that technology, which arguably isn't benefiting us kind of as a human race, in, in, necessarily for the, for, for the good. Why don't we take all of that technology and put it into um, a publicly owned, non-for-profit fact-checking service, which is linked through a series of modern lie detectors, which are attached to all people in public office. So... So whenever, whenever you know, um, a politician or, or, or so is, is lying, then their nose uh, starts to flash red and you get that <laughs> klaxon that goes... <laughs> and then also a little door opens up in the head like in a cartoon and a mallet comes out and dinks them on the bunts. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fitted. It's fit. So in, 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 in the debating chambers, everyone is wired up to it and obviously staffed by dinner ladies that make sure everyone's completely <laughs> wired into the mainframe. And I think it could change politics because I think what it's interesting, isn't it? Like, because it's, it's when, when bullshit pops up, like when you proposed that, what was it a two year cap on energy prices? Yeah. And they said, oh, he's redhead. And they went yeah. after your granddad and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. And then what was it recently? Theresa May proposed exactly the same exactly. thing. And it was seen as being, uh, oh, it seems like it was a very, very sensible policy by the Prime Minister. <laughs> there should have been a lie detector went off on the news and saying, brruh, brruh. Last time you called bullshit on Ed and chased after his granddad okay, for Christ's sake. On, you're the selling this policy. idea well to me. And the, yeah, the technology's there. It's just about using the technology for the benefit of all of us. And, uh, and, you, and we could roll it out to the news as well. There's enough dinner ladies as well to you know, get the technology into the news system. Well, what do you think about this? I, th- I think we're in. Uh, Rob, we should let you go before I do so. I don't want to go. I, I like it here. <laughs> I mean, you're welcome to stay. <laughs> I'm doing a gig in Doncaster Ed's constituency. Yeah. yeah, I asked him to provide a police escort, but yeah, you, I uh, failed. Yeah. <laughs> failed. <laughs> you, you're doing uh, a couple of things in Edinburgh that we should mention. Yes, I'm at the Edinburgh Festival. I'm doing uh, a, a solo show called Are You City Comfortably? Uh, and I'm doing a... Does it involve dinner ladies, do you think? Uh, not at this point, but... Right. Uh, maybe now. Guessing from tonight's response, yeah. maybe it should do. Um, yeah. And I'm also doing a show with my wife that she's written, a play called The Ladder at the Gilded Balloon uh, in the mornings. And we have a podcast as well, if I may plug that, called Robin Helen's Date Night Podcast. And it's called At Date Night Pod on Twitter. And we just do... We go on uh, random day dates with each other and just try and have more fun. Oh, yeah, it's good fun. All right, Rob Rouse, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Cheers.
Uh, Gail, thank you so much. Gail's show is on BBC Radio Leeds it every is day. Tea times three yep. till six. Yep. You had Marty Pello from Wet 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 on yesterday. I did, and I got very excited because <laughs> I still love him. Do you think a little Gail bit. might have us on at some point? <gasps> I'd love you on the show. Yeah. That would be great. Definitely. That's what we say to people. Then we say, we'll get a yeah, producer exactly. to get in touch with you. <laughs> She's kicking yeah. it into the long grass. Seriously, I had Sting on the other week. What on earth makes you think I'd want you to? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm not joking. I did have Sting on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we can compete with Sting, I don't can think we? so. Uh, Gail Lofthouse, thank, thank you so much. Thank you. I think she was keen to get away before we sort of tried to pin her down on the question of whether we were going to appear on the, pro- on I the think show. So, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. This is, uh, I've, I've very much enjoyed myself in Sheffield. So have I. So we do some thank yous. Do you yous. think they've been the best audience Definitely yet? Definitely the best audience. Give yourself a big whoop. Uh, we should. We should thank Joe, Joshua, and Mark. Yep. Are you yep. going to do some thank yous too? Yeah, uh, so thanks to Rob Rouse. And to the wonderful Gail Lofthouse. Emma Corsham produced our podcast with backup and research from Alex Weiss-Price and Lindsay Todd. Gail Lofthouse was our announcer. Ed Seed wrote the music. James Deacon uh, made the idents. Chris Marr was our stage manager and technical producer tonight. Big round of applause for all of them, I think. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Thank you. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 